Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Overdue Rentals Podcast, the show where we talk about films that maybe people stopped talking about for some reason. We don't know why. Maybe they just weren't popular when they came out. Maybe they were massively popular, just nobody seems to want to talk about it. I'm Matthew Shuckman. And I'm Cinema Blend's Mike Reyes. And we are here tonight with a writer from Sci-Fi Wire and Forbes, among other wonderful publications. He is also the author of the upcoming book, Beat the Devils. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Overdue Rentals Counter, Josh Weiss. Josh, how are you? Uh, Josh Weiss, right? I'm pronouncing that right? Not Jawai yeah. or Josh? Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, you'd be surprised at the, uh, the, the, the names people call me. I've been called Joss, John. So it's, you're, on a, you're, you, you're off to a good start. I was called Mitch a lot recently. I don't know why, but you know, that's okay. Mitchell. I mean, that's, that's not bad name but i just i always see okay so we were talking about before we get into the actual business of the show we were talking about you know josh asked matthew if it was matthew or matt and for the longest time and i was just thinking about it today as i was like prepping for another junket it's like you know i never really thought to call him matt because he's always seemed like a matthew person to me okay i'm gonna say this and i may have to cut it out of the episode to be honest with you because i don't care whether people call me matt or matthew but I will say that I like when women I'm involved with call me Matthew instead of Matt. That's nothing to cut. That's nothing to be ashamed of. That's, that's, that's sexy. a special touch. Ladies, to you, he is Matthew. But to us, he's family. <laughs> anyway, uh, we are also here to talk about an overdue rental film that I was so glad Josh picked out of his two. Uh, Frank Darabont's 2001 classic, it matches, it mat, it, it tracks both time-wise and content-wise, The Majestic, starring Jim Carrey and a slew of others. But before we get into that movie rabbit hole, uh, we need to talk Beat the Devils, because uh, thank you to the wonderful folks at Grand Central Publishing, a division of Pachette Book, book Company. Uh, I believe that's the right branding, but Pachette, please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, this is set to debut on March 22nd, and it is the story of LAPD detective Morris Baker, a Holocaust survivor who drowns his fractured memories of uns the unspeakable in schnapps and work. And uh, if that isn't enough of a hook for you, I don't know what is, but what if I sell you on alternate 1958 where Joseph McCarthy's president and the murders of uh, a filmmaker by the name of John Houston and a newscaster by the name of Walter Cronkite have taken place in sordid lavender fashion according to the official report by the feds it's beautiful how'd i do josh beautiful beautiful stage setter right there and i'm curious how how far in are you guys um Don't i will sheepishly admit i am only on chapter eight because of the busy hustle and bustle however right, you gotta mail it back to me if you if you're not done yet fine. <laughs> I, you know what fuck it show's done thank you but what i will say about this book though is I am, I find that I am becoming more and more of a stickler for people that say something's noir and it doesn't match up. Like you can very easily, neo-noir is such a, something that's just very easily thrown out there, but especially as of recent, uh, the outfit is coming up, which we've both seen and is definitely noir, uh, Knives Out's kind of a neo, no, no, Knives Out's not even in there, I wouldn't counted yeah. as that or maybe the loosest bit but nightmare alley is definitely noir right this has all of the underpinnings that i love so much that when i do actually get to sit down and read it it grabs me 
And then on top of that, just the alternate reality that you've constructed with this very different timeline where things have, have really skewed. And I just want to open, up to you, uh, open the floor up to you and ask you, where did the initial germ of this idea come from? And when did it really start to pick up? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it was a confluence of two different things. Um, the first one is growing up, um, hearing my father talk about his father, my grandfather's uh, stories of survival. He was from Czechoslovakia um, and he was in uh, three different concentration camps when the war broke out, uh, his whole family was killed. And I just, I never knew him that well, unfortunately, but I just always grew up hearing those stories of him and, and just kind of these horrible, horrible stories of, he once saw someone else eat another person's vomit in the concentration camp. Um, just wow. horrible things that happened during the war. And it just, I always wanted to tell that story in some way. I always loved to write and I always wanted to tell that story, but I knew I couldn't really tell a biography in the traditional way. I didn't really have all the facts. I wasn't very close to him. Um, so that kind of just, uh, germinated in my mind for a while. And then in my sophomore year of college, I saw the original Manchurian Candidate and I loved it. And yeah, great film. And I was just blown away. I'm like, okay, I need to, I want to tell a Cold War thriller. Um, why not set it during, I love alternate history. Why not set it during a, in a, a reality where Joseph McCarthy's president? And then I thought, okay, I need a protagonist. And then it just occurred to me, it was like a light bulb moment. Why not merge the Cold War thriller idea with the desire to tell my grandfather's story. And that's kind of where Morris Baker came from. He's obviously very loose, loosely based on my grandfather, but that is kind of the, uh, the long or the short of it. What, what type of, I mean, obviously you didn't come with this fully germinated though when that idea did come up. Mm -hmm. So did you find yourself moving more and more into one version of an alternate history than you planned or you realized you had to kind of maybe scale it back to maybe being just the players and obviously what comes with them being now in control to maybe something a little more really outside of the box. Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, it really started as kind of just like an, like I was, I it was in college, like I said, I was in college at the time um, and I was at an internship and I was going to, I was getting about 5 a.m. every other morning to go to New York. Um, I'd go to New York, then I would have to get a shuttle in the city to go to Englewood. Um, okay. so, so I thought I need something to kind of keep keep myself from going insane. Um, and I just started kind of just playing, like it was, it was just an exercise really. It just, it didn't even start. Like I said, yeah, like I said, I'm gonna write a book. Yeah, right. And uh, I wrote like the first few chapters or something and sent them to my mom and she read them and she, you know, she loved them because she had to, you know, that's in the contract. Um, but uh, I feel like I'm getting away from the original question. What, <laughs> what was it again? Well, just the idea of, you know, maybe as, as the idea started to fully form into what's now the book, mm -hmm. the idea of it maybe being a little further away from the more outrageous places it could have went or being able to reel it back in because you feel, felt that maybe if I went too far, it would lose people. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, always, it's always a balancing act, I think. I mean, when, I, if like, when I'm doing research and I'm, and I'm kind of like obsessing over like, is this accurate enough that this person, would this person do this? Would they say that? It kind of, you kind of find yourself in a quagmire. You kind of have to kind of ground it in something that people know, but also take it in your own direction. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just find that like when I, I'm very neurotic, I'm Jewish. So, you know, um, but, you know, I, I try to find the right balance of, okay, you know, this person of real things, this person would have done or said, obviously the book has some, some real world quotes that people, these historical figures said, 
um, but also kind of grounding it in um, or take uh, taking it in a in a more imaginative direction. I guess I hope that's that, that was kind of a roundabout way of answering. Yeah, well, no, but that's perfect, and it's also but it's also brings up the point where and I I know Mike and I kind of get into this a lot because we always keep talking about I'm not trying and I'm not trying to like pick a generational fight with people here, but you know when we are covering something that was a real life wondering about how many younger generations know about a lot of stuff because it's not being taught anymore. Or even if you like McCarthy and blacklisting, all that stuff came right. more from my father and what he was introducing me to also in other media than what I was learning in school. So while I also had a great idea of what it was without doing more research, I may not know. So the question is then also how much of what you thought these people were like or what they were changed after you start doing the research so you made sure that they were real in your book right and it's yeah i mean it's it's um yeah i mean it's a great point it's it's really all the characters even the historical ones are, are pastiches or like someone like john houston's wife who's in the book is not really based on who she was in real life she's really kind of more of a, a nod to kind of the lauren bacall types of, of the old mm. film noirs and kind of those strong women and femme fatales of, of the genre so you know, in some cases, just like, I don't even, I don't even want to try, because she's such an obscure person um, in a way that like, it's just kind of, you can kind of take it in your own direction um, because of the way that like, everybody knows who Humphrey Bogart is. So that was a little more challenging to kind of write a character, write him into the story. But um, when it came to other people or like Elizabeth Short, you can kind of just kind of, um, you know, she would have been dead uh, for a decade in our in our real in our in this universe so like it's just it, it's fun to kind of play around with what you know and then kind of taking it in in kind of what you think it like even this the whole this whole los angeles in this book i've i've been to los angeles twice in my life it's really kind of my romanticized version of it i mean when i was writing i reached out to the lapd they never got back to me so i just made up what what they what their headquarters look like i'm like it's you know it's um so it's it's really uh a mix of you know doing research but also you know not being confined to the historical uh you know because then you're just writing a piece of nonfiction. yeah that's that's always something that's just sort of held me back from some of the stuff that i've wanted to write uh just because it's sort of in my it's sort of nogging hitting at my head and it's like okay i i want to be true but at the same time i don't know where the line is and right exactly yeah, and uh, to Matthew's point with his earlier question, I think what he really meant to ask is, when do we get the Space Monkey Mafia that Billy Joel promised us and we didn't start the fire? Um, when What year would that have been? <laughs> I don't know. We See, we really have to listen to it again and sort of break it down and find out where that is on the timeline. But you know what? That could just be a bonus. Right. Well, if this, you know, if this is a series, I'll just, I'll just go by uh, the, the lyrics and we'll just hit one historical beat of the Cold War at a time. Well, see, that was something else that I wanted to bring up. Uh, do you, is this a character that you want to do a series of, or was this a one-off? Um, I'll have to invoke the fifth on that one. Uh, all, all I'll that, say that answers the question there, right there. That really answers it. <laughs> I mean, Mr. Rice, have, are you, have you ever been a best-selling author? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, I look. I love this character, and I, I really hope that people love him enough to maybe you know, revisit him again in, in a different adventure. We'll see. I, I can neither confirm nor deny. I mean, I, all I can say is I, I recently did finish a second book um, with a, a little bit of a larger narrative scope, um, but that's all I'm allowed to say right now. I was actually, it reminded me of something that was like not even what I was really even thinking about ever bringing up until 
this afternoon, I was just doing extra research and just looking at things. And I, you know, I wanted to see if there were some pre-reviews already up and so on and so forth. And I saw on, on Goodreads, because I guess they have a, give, a giveaway that started on February 22nd that will end right before the book uh, kind of hits for a lot of people. They love those giveaways. And they, but they were like, they're like, there are like 2,000 or like, you know, like 3,000 people that are like, have entered in the giveaway. And for somebody who, you know, isn't already a well-established author, you know, to the, be able to go and see that, like, how does that feel that already people are kind of clamoring for your work? I mean, that's, I didn't even know that was, that was, uh, I didn't know you could see numbers on the giveaway. Uh, I mean, it's, oh yeah. And that yeah. shit gets competitive. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's flattering. It's awesome. I mean, this is, you know, when you start out to write something, you write it uh, for yourself, really. You don't really kind of think, yeah, obviously the dream is to sell it, to get, you know, get the book deal and the, and the movie deal, the Netflix miniseries, whatever it is. Um, but you know, you write it for yourself because that's, you know, there's nobody else at, the, at that moment when you sit down to write the story. So um, it's just kind of crazy and almost surreal. It still doesn't feel real that like people are going to get to get their hands on it in just two weeks time. Like it's like when I when I uh, signed on with the publisher, they're like, yeah, it's like as soon as like finally when we started. Um, well, first back paddle, just have you, have you guys read The Stand? I've never read the full stand. I've read pieces of it. <laughs> okay. My favorite pieces, but I've seen the uh, I've seen the the original miniseries. Okay, well, you know, so there's a character, Larry Underwood. He's the he's the musician. He gets the big uh, song deal, and then the world goes to shit. And that's how I felt when COVID hit. Because we had just signed, we had just <gasps> locked down the deal. Uh... My agent had just locked down the deal, and then COVID, the world goes to shit, and I have to wait, you know, six, seven months, or whatever, how long, or even longer, until we could finally get into the editing process and all that, and the cover art and all that. And it was just it felt like, you know, I felt like that character in the Stephen King book and it, it's, but, um, you know, and, and then that, that was like really a, a dark point, not just for me, for the whole world. Like, I'm not gonna, you know, cry you guys a river here. All of us felt that impact. Um, oh yeah. But, you know- Personally and professionally. Right, exactly. Like it was just such an uncertain time. Um, but finally, you know, when, when we started to get into the editing and, and we had the you know, the cover mock-ups and whatever. And my editor said, you know, now over the next few months, it's going to start to feel real. And it has in some, in some regards, but until I see it on Barnes and Noble at, at the stand, I don't think it's going to feel real for me yet. You know, or I, until it's at Hudson News and Penn Station. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or at an airport. It, feel, it feels weird to say, honestly, because I feel like this is both, you know, um, not hurtful, but I guess, uh, you know, not even, I don't even know what word, I'm not, so I'm not going to say it, but to other people that I've known that have gone out and gotten book deals compared to what I'm seeing that coming from you, because granted, what's the, well, the story is everything. It doesn't matter, but you can tell there's a certain levels of what the product is literally physically. Mm -hmm. That means that like, no, this is some serious shit compared to, yeah, we'll pay you to put this out. Maybe some people will buy it. And that's all it is. You got the serious shit here, man. <laughs> Well, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, it's, I'm just trying my best to kind of just push it. And, and since it is my first book, I mean, it's, it's, you know, you want, you want to put your best foot forward. And um, one of the people who was kind enough to give me a blurb for the book, you know, he, he was like, he gave me the blurb. He's like, oh, do you mind if I give you some advice? And I'm like, sure. And then he sends me like paragraphs of what it was of his experience as his bestselling author. Um, and he said, you know, you, your job does not end after writing the book. He said, I made that mistake you know, years ago, but mm. it's really, you know, you have to be involved in every step, not just writing, but obviously editing, marketing, and, and I'm trying, I know I post a lot about this on social media, I'm sure people are sick of it by now, but I'm just, I'm just trying to, you know, 
be as involved as I can, especially because this is a lifelong dream for me. I just, it's so, you know, going back to the surrealist, it's just unbelievable, but I'm also just trying to, you know, make sure it reaches the, the, the biggest audience possible. Full disclosure, I was glad that you landed with the Shet because back in my office job days, I used to do book reviews. And thanks to them, I got a lot of early access copies for other books and I got to review them. They even pulled one of my quotes for, for a James Patterson book. And I feel like that was a real crucial experience to, to shaping my voice. And I was like this nothing blog. And to not only see a friend of mine following his dream, but to also see that happen at a place that I, that, that looked safe to me from the outside. And now to hear that it, what well, it is, it's just, it's a lovely, it's just a lovely experience to see you going through this. I am not sick of seeing the posts because it's just, a lot of people think, I, I, I think a lot of people think that in our business, it's competitive. It's very much hunting for the scoop, push the other guy aside to get to that pod space first. Mm -hmm. But the more that I've had experiences in, in entertainment journalism, the more that I've seen friendship really is something that is strong among us. For sure. And just to turn it back on you, I'm so like, Matt, did you see all those no time to die ads with, uh, with Mike's uh, pull quote? It was Mike. <laughs> Fuck him. No, Mike, 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 you know, is, uh, is my, is my idol here, you know, because he's, uh, he's much more adept at a lot of these things than I am. I'm a much more, uh, much more important person than I am. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> thank you, Mike. Yeah. But just, like, anyway. Like, yeah. I mean, it's just awesome. Like you, you are getting quoted like every trailer that I see and, um, that's just really cool because it's yeah, like you, you want to put, you want to elevate your friends in this business and your colleagues. And, you know, like you said, it's not, it's not just, you know, cutthroat. Uh, it's about supporting each other and being happy for each other's success. Yeah. And plus this is, I think this is the third book that I have that I can honestly say, I know the author, I know them well, and I'm friendly with them. And it's just really Let's cool. not go that far. Okay. Sorry, I don't acquaintances. That's I it. don't know why Matt and I are like ganging up on you, but no, I love you, Mike. Um, I, I ran into Josh Weiss once at a Batman screening and, and he, he said hi, and that was cool. Not the and, Batman, everybody, just because it's not like they're brand new friends. Oh, well, I think, no, no, we did. Uh, I'm trying to think of what the first time we did run into each other. I do know that we no. ran into each other, not only at the Batman, but also oh, Joker, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. I can't remember. Well, you know where we first met? Do you remember that? No, I don't. Met on the red carpet for Titans, the first season, back during New York Comic Con. All those yes! years. Ago. Oh, that's right. That was yeah. a hell of a night. We were right next to each other on the uh, on the carpet. That was a, that was a good time. Yep, and then we got to be in the same room as Brendan Fraser, read from Doom Patrol. Yeah, I don't think our lives are ever going to get better than that. No, like popcorn and couches at the, the what was that? The Hammerstein Ballroom. I believe, so. yes, I th or somewhere, somewhere around there. It's interesting yeah. though, because that's where Mike, Mike and I met also during junkets, you know? So we're all, we're all junket friends now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, it's, it's fun because we, because we all work in like such isolated pockets. We all work from home and, and we're freelancers. So it's always nice to, to meet like-minded geeks like yourself. Hold on, I got to butt a head off a chicken. I'll be right back. <laughs> No problem. Well, I know I'm. 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 I'm Speaking I'm, of nightmare I'm, alley, I'm the only. Yes. I'm the only. <laughs> oh, oh, that's. Um, 
that's probably one we'd have to wait for a couple of years to to consider it overdue or maybe just the end of this year because wait till I, the Oscars at least pass. Yeah. Yeah, I I really want uh, I really wanted that movie to do more, but it's one of three movies that I I think kind of got unjustly buried by its studio. But at the same time, two of them were nominated for Best Picture, and one of them failed to drop out of the top ten until just recently, because that was what happened with King's Man. Well, speaking of being buried by your studio, what I think we should talk Matthew. about Peter Appleton. Jim Carrey's character from The Majestic. We're here to talk about Sam Pirates of the Sahara, the 1950s. Yeah, I mean, how great is that they got Bruce Campbell for that? Bruce Campbell and Cliff Curtis. Yes, it's awesome. And did you notice, not to get ahead of ourselves here, but you notice when he's watching it later in the film, he uses the idol from Raiders of the Lost Ark to knock out the uh, the explorer? I'll be be honest with you, Mike, before you get into that, I'll be honest. So again, I've seen this movie plenty of times. So when it first came out, but I've been so busy. I only got to watch like an extra hour of it and prep for this. So the later half, I, ha- I have less of a fresh recollection of than the first half. That's fair. I mean, I had not seen it in years. This was, I watched it last night for the second time ever. And um, it was schmaltzy, but I, in a very good way. Mike, have you watched the trailer, for, the original trailer for The Majestic at all? I haven't recently? watched it in a while but I could always quickly throw it on right now. It is, they marketed this thing like a murder mystery, like a horror murder mystery. In now the, I have in to throw the, it the on. actual trailer. It was, it was so, I'm like, I'm dumbfounded. I'm wondering, because again, it's how much we talk about people seeing things and getting upset that it's not what they signed up for. Like, if I saw yeah. this trailer, I'm like, what, what? This is not the same movie at all, even though they used footage from the movie. The person that made this trailer should be fired. <laughs> Seriously, though, right? It's like, again, not to say that that not necessarily would make people want to go see the film, but that is one of the biggest gaps of between what is actually the film and what they're they're selling me. Because at least the whole drive thing, because we keep mentioning it, at least it was, you know, technically not so unreal. No, Drive Drive's trailer was still very much... Yeah, within the wheelhouse of the movie. And Josh, I'm sure you know this story, but for our listeners who may not have heard when we mentioned it before, there was a woman that sued because the drive trailer was promised, apparently it promised a Fast and Furious style movie and that's not what she got. Right, well, did she win? I think she did. Did she? could be wrong. I don't know, you know what? I'm going to look that up right now. But in the meantime, (sighs) the, the marketing of the Majestic is a very interesting thing because you look at there's it's not just the trailer to the movie although that's the largest gap yeah i don't remember if the dvd cover was the original poster for it and it's june carrey and laurie holden kissing above like the marquee very very casablanca-esque i i get that i get that more than i fucking get that trailer but then you look at some of the other, I think there might have been another poster and the cover of the soundtrack. It's this very beautiful, sort of hand painted version of Jim Carrey in like blue and yellow. Right, like a watercolor almost. I know yeah, and about. like that's the sort of vintage that 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 captures the essence of the film best, I think. I mean, because okay, I, I know why they cut that trailer the way they did too, because it, it, they're they're trying to play off of. Frank Darabont, you know, from the director of the Shawshank Redemption and the Green Mile. It's like, okay, you got to sex it up a little bit here, but it's like, did you watch those movies? 
I mean, but it's like, it's also like, again, you know, the, the Majestic is very much, you know, a Frank Capra-esque modern version of oh, Frank Capra-esque types yes. of films. And it could, you know, even if you leave out the theater side of it, like the actual Majestic side of it, you could almost claim that this is like uh, a wonderful, it's a wonderful life by way of Mr. Smith goes to Washington. And right. like, he yeah. just like jammed together, kind of made a movie out of them. And, and, you know, he did a great job of actually portraying that feeling. And it, even though it could be, um, you know, purposely trying to tug at your heartstrings and, you know, very obvious what it's trying to do, it works. It works. It was, it was a sweet film. I liked it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny that I, I was going to bring up Capra as well, because it just has that really American wholesomeness to it. Um, but like Mike said, like, you know, they're, they're trying to capitalize on what Darabont had did before. And this was his only non-Stephen King movie. So I'm curious, like, what what do you guys think about that? Because like, yeah, he, he did Shawshank, Green Mile, this, then The Mist. So like, it's just, it's such a weird blip. In his, I mean, it's, it's enjoyable, but it's just so weird. Well, I like the fact that, you know, like, I mean, granted, I don't necessarily think he had to go back and do The Mist if he didn't want to. You know, like, it shouldn't have to be that, you know, again, the guy's been in the game for so long before he starts directing. Mm -hmm. And he does have ties into certain horror things from, you know, we talked about the original, um, uh, not the original, but the remake of The Blob, which he, he she produced and some other things. And that's well, he co-wrote it. Right. He wrote it with, with Chuck Russell, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And co-wrote it. Right. Yeah. Who he um, also uh, worked with on Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Yeah. And there is a beautiful Easter egg in this movie to their, their, their shared connection. Oh. So what is the bar that Peter Appleton is drinking at when he goes on his bender? The Coco Bongo Seaside Bar and Grill. All right, that's the connection to the uh, mask, right? Exactly, the club in the mask directed by Chuck Russell is the Coco Bongo Club. That's but yeah, no, but it's a it's it's a movie that I, I appreciate that like he's doing something he doesn't have to just do Stephen King things. I would like to see that. And again, not necessarily horror because Shawshank Redemption is not horror, and Green Mile is you know maybe adjacent in some people's minds, but they're not horror films just because Stephen King's attached to it. So, but still kind of breaking away from that is kind of what I would like to see people do. So, you know, the fact that they went back to it just makes it a little more strange, I guess. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, to, to Josh's earlier point that we've been talking out, I really do like the atypicalness of, Fra I mean, it's atypical for Frank Darabont, but at the same time, especially when you look at, well, when you look at his whole filmography, but especially when you look at Shawshank and, and Green Mile, it is, it, he does play really well with small town contained settings. Mm or smaller contained settings where there's a, a solid core of characters to work with. Although this is probably his widest ensemble because uh, Newton is not a, a small town. Well, it's a small town, but compared to the cast that he used in like the Green Mile or even Shawshank, it, it looks bigger. Yeah, but he, but, still has, but he still has his main players. He still has Jeffrey DeMone in there. He has Laurie Holden and uh, uh, James Whitmore technically in there. So he has his, he has yeah. his typical, uh, you know, um, Repertory company. Yeah. It is a shame that Lori Holden has not gotten a Lauren Bacall biopic yet. <laughs> and all I needed to, to say that was when I, I rented the movie again, because I don't know where my DVD is. I rented it 
And when I pulled up my Google TV, it was a freeze frame of her. And it was just for a moment, I thought like, wait, did they do their usual thing where they screw something up? And this is, this is actually a, a shot of Lauren Bacall. And it's like, no, that's, that's her. And it's like, oh, I've, I've never, I, if I've noticed the, the uncanny likeness before, yeah. I've re-noticed it. I would I would say, and I apologize to jump back in, just because I don't want to lose the cast thing for a second, though. But just going back to your point, Mike, about, about being small town and, you know, not unlike, you know, the idea that he has these bigger picture kind of cast, though. But there are a lot of actors in this that are, like, not only big time, like, classic legends uh, from Martin Landau, Hal Holbrook, and, you know, to, to even know... Certain certain audiences may not know Bob Balaban. You got Bob Balaban. You got Alan Garfield. Oh, fucking you got Balaban. Alan Garfield in there, and you know Ron, Ron Rifkin. Rifkin. <laughs> yeah, it's like there's like there's a lot of people in this movie aside from also Jim Carrey, David Odgen Stiers. Yeah, yeah. Well, who does he play? I, he plays I, the doctor and Adele's father. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I saw that before going in, and then I I mental I made a mental note like look out for him, and then I just totally forgot. There's also the uh, voice cameo by uh, some guy named Matt 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 Damon. Matt Damon. <laughs> yeah, Andrew Campbell, of course. <laughs> that he was up for that. He was up for the role of uh, Peter Appleton, I think, or he passed oh. on. But this was like three, two, three years after, right after Saving Private Ryan. So I guess he was yeah. kind of done with that. And um, let's not forget uh, the vocal cameos in the beginning. They had uh, Rob Reiner, right. uh, Pollock, Gary Marshall. Yeah. Right. Um, Rob Reiner's actually, you see Rob Reiner. Don't, no, you just hear the voice. That's right. I forgot. Yeah, I, just, I literally just rewatched that part and I forget. Right. I it's, it's funny because, like, because I know how Darabounce Dar- had, had like a history of like, you know, being frustrated with Hollywood. So that's kind of like a great embodiment of like how kind of, you know, by committee thinking studios are with, with big films. It's, it's, it's kind of a very funny meta jab at the industry. What's his name? Clyde. I don't like it. Okay. So anyway, no name. Look at me, I have tears. But I, I wonder if that is also maybe where certain people had a disconnect from the film, whether they liked it or not, because it didn't seem to, I could, well, I, I don't think so, but I think I can understand where some people think that it may have not seemed to have gotten to its point in a certain place because there is just that Hollywood feeling of it. Then there's the hometown, like real life feeling of things to the, you know, the, the McCarthy-esque committee of, of blacklisting people. And all of them fit, but necessarily not in perfect little pieces that most people would like. Well, it certainly doesn't fucking help if you watch that trailer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think it does, it does, like, there's, the movie does a really great job about driving home the, the theme of um, identity. Like, you know, obviously Peter wants to be somebody in Hollywood, then he ends up being nobody. And then he realizes that being somebody in that town doesn't really mean anything to him anymore. So I thought that was a, a nice touch yes. and, and very uh, well tracks well throughout the story oh, not just too uh too uh, uh pre- pretentious but you know yeah, yeah uh, like pretentious people why are you bringing there. these snooty people onto the podcast mike what's wrong with you <laughs> yeah i actually have a full breakdown of uh sand pirates of the sahara if, if you'll allow me please please do <laughs> please a movie that please do just remember, to see how far you get into it <laughs> remember when special features were a thing and this was one of the special features on the Majestic that you could watch all that they shot of Sam Pirates of the Sahara in its glory. Oh, I did not know this. Yeah. I never owned a physical copy, personally. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you guys, like, I'm sure we're all around the same age, but like, do you remember, I don't remember when this movie came out. So I, I do. Oh, yeah. I, do. I remember I do. that. 
Oh, go ahead. Sorry. You first. Oh, no, 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 please, please. I remember this coming out in, in 2001 mm -hmm. and this was the one that everybody, well, I think some people were talking about, you know, this could, this could be the one that Jim Carrey finally gets nominated for. And I remember my heart breaking that this went unrecognized at all by the Academy, yeah. especially because yeah. it felt like a movie that the Academy would have loved to recognize again, after being re after being released a couple months after 9-11. Right. Like this was prescient in some of its themes in, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but this was so prescient in some of its themes, especially with just the whole line about, oh, well, you know, the constitution is, the Bill of Rights, they're just these contracts and they, people have signed it, they can be renegotiated. And little did we know that a couple of years later, those would be some of the very sentiments we would be throwing into Star Wars movies. Well, look, I'll say two things. First of all, I, did, I didn't see it in the theater, but I remember coming out, I didn't see it until it came to home video. Me too. I remember, yeah, I remember watching, renting it and watching it there. And it's again, another one of those films that like my father saw right before me. He's like, oh, you got to watch this. It was so good. Um, but I do see though, where people can watch this now and misinterpret a lot of that stuff because it seems that while, you know, people's interpretations of the constitution have always been a little muddy, I, I could see people taking a lot of the stuff the way it's presented here and using it in the way that was not meant to be used. Hmm. So, uh, Josh, I want you to do your breakdown of uh, Sam. Oh, no, I was I was totally kidding about that. <laughs> Fucker! But, you had me on the I hook. Apologize. That's why he's an author, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, you gotta. Uh, that's the twist right there. <laughs> but no, but I I do I do like it. Does feel so, like such like an old you know, like a film, like, an old, like it, you know, sometimes when they go, a film tries to kind of go for that old aesthetic, it feels modern, but it really feels like an old Hollywood series. Yeah, yeah. No, it's just, it plays up the hokiness, but yeah. this, it, you, Darabont is such a fan of this stuff that he plays it straight so perfectly. I kind of wish that they could do a full version of this, even though I would assume it would go into some iffy territory because this kind of borders on it anyway. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, don't, I don't understand what you're saying by a full version of this. A full version of Sam Pirates of the Sahara. Like oh, just, oh, I thought you were talking about the Majestic. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, because all they ever showed people was the trailer and it was never released. Okay, got it. They're like, wait, what? I, I, what now? I'm like, there was, that's what we're talking about, the full release. That's what I'm, I'm confused about. <laughs> Speaking of releases, um, the competition for this movie was rather stiff. Um, I'm just going to rattle off some names here mm. and, you know, you might, you might see, start to see how this movie partially became an overdue rental. Um, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring. Oh, I was, I was ready. I, wait, uh, before you go on, Mike, I'm sorry. I was ready to make a joke and every movie you were going to say, I was going to say crap, crap, crap. But I can't even joke about that with Lord of the Rings. So. Okay, fair. I mean, you could have pl still played that joke, but. No, uh, I couldn't have. I, I automatically thought, no, that's not right. <laughs> It's even more of a joke because you're wrong. Anyway, the joke's done. Anyway, Ocean's Eleven, uh, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, oh and Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius. Well, that's a Stone Cold classic right there. That's why it bombed because <laughs> Jimmy Neutron. I legitimately liked Jimmy Neutron, or at least when I saw it, I legitimately liked it. No, but seriously, that's the other three things it's going up against? That's yeah, tough. That, who, somebody made a mistake on releasing. Um, especially Warner Brothers because, uh, well, Harry Potter had been out since November, but obviously that's still going to be cashing in chips a month later. 
Ocean's Eleven, I think, was early December. And I think, and Fellowship should have been early December too. And that's three movies right there that Warner Brothers has out that are competing with each other, but all did rather well. But was then this a- I'm sure, I'm sure they, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. I'm sure they dropped the Majestic because they thought it was a, it was a prestige play. Yeah, like this, 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 was, this was like, let's drop it so it can get in time for Academy Awards consideration and then we'll do yeah. a wider release or more press as the year comes on, it just, but it never, it never worked. Yeah, I'm sure that, yeah, it's just like uh, Disney filled up their calendar for last December. Only, you know, King's Man and Nightmare Alley did okay. And uh, West Side Story and Night, well, West Side Story and Nightmare Alley were their big awards contenders, but that was all in the wake of Spider-Man, which they never fucking did. Zero No was the one that suffered the most this year out of it because they dropped that for the the awards. And then as it just comes out now- That's not Disney. That's not Disney, but still, that is a movie that suffered great. I still haven't even seen it yet, but that was a movie that suffered greatly. Yeah, did the Majestic get recognized by any, like any Golden Globes, anything? I, I don't up. think it did. I'm gonna take a double check, but yeah, I really I don't think it did because, again, that was just an insane sort of. It was an insane sort of year, but also not only did the movie underperform box office, it wasn't really well regarded by critics. This, uh, th- yeah, did not. It, this did not pull the, the lot what people thought it would. And I think, I think people just misunderstood. Not forget the trailer kind of thing. I think people just misunderstood what was going on here, and they were thinking it's going to be one thing in their own mind, and because it didn't turn out to be that, they just got all upset. Yeah, yeah. but I'll tell you who did like this movie. Roger Ebert. Yeah. And ultimately, I mean, what more do you need to say about that? True. I mean, it's, it's like, did 9-11 have anything to do with it? Like, were people looking, were they, did they think that it was too. overly sentimental? You know, like, after that, everybody went kind of very dark and grounded and cynical. Was that A kind lo- of- Yeah. No, sorry. I oh, no, that, that was, yeah. Just one, like, yeah, I wonder if people thought it was too hokey at the time. That was what some of the, what it, uh, looking at Wikipedia, that's what it looks like some of the critical reviews were saying. Uh, websites critical consensus read on Rotten Tomatoes, ponderous and overlong, the majestic drowns it in forced sentimentality and resembles a mishmash of other better films. However, Roger Ebert says, it flies the flag in, our, in honor of our World War II heroes and evokes nostalgia for small town movie palaces and the people who run them. Mm-hmm. Frank Darabont has deliberately made, tried to make the mo- kind of movie Capper made about decent small town folks standing up for traditional American values. In the age of Rambo, an age of Rambo patriotism, it's good to be reminded of Capper patriotism to remember that America is not just about fighting and winning, but about defending our freedoms. Yeah, I mean, it's point. not untrue either, but I do think it loses a little bit of the point of what Josh was saying earlier about the idea of, you know, losing yourself one place finding yourself another because that that is also a very that should be the more main point of everything um and again just paraphrasing I mean, point of everything sorry and when you really think it, it is a main point of everything yeah and when you really think about it uh that is kind of another way to tie into the whole patriotism debate because of just the country itself had that same identity crisis not only in the mccarthy era but also in our modern era Mm-hmm. And I mean, just that whole speech he t- gives about Luke Trimble's America and how this isn't what he fought for. And I w- what would you say if you were faced by him? You know what? I will, I will say that, again, talking about earlier how 
a lot of this is meant to pull your heartstrings and it is a little gooey, you know, overly gooey and you, you expect it. And as much as I appreciate all of those things, I do find that was a little too much um, for what I was looking for, but I, I didn't care. I didn't, it didn't bother me the way a lot of other movies do. And Mike knows me, I'm, everything bothers me. It's very rare that I would say praise, praising things about something like this most of the time. So it works, but I do think that maybe a little too much. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I would tend to describe, I was actually tearing up a little bit at the end there. Um, and like my, going back to Mike's point about, you know, people thought maybe this could be the one for Jim Carrey. This is, uh, and again, talking about the kind of outlier this was in Darabont's filmography, it's also an, an outlier for Jim Carrey. This was what, three years before Eternal Sunshine, right? Mm -hmm. Something like that. Yeah. So like, and it's such, it's so weird to see, um, you know, and not in a disparaging way, like it's just so strange not to see Jim Carrey, you know, going full crazy. Like he's so grounded in this film. It's, it's, there it's are, really great to see. There are points in this movie where he doesn't even look like himself. And yeah. it's not because of makeup or anything, but just the way that he carries himself, the way that they dress him, the, the way that he comports himself is just, and he sells this with every fiber of his being and it works for me. But see, that's the, this is the interesting thing, especially about Jim Carrey, just like he's saying, because it was before also Eternal Sunshine mm -hmm. and what will end up being a run of, of you know, basically dramatic roles for him. Yeah, his yes. masterpiece, the number seven. Yeah, but, but even, even with, even with him doing- oh, Number 23, that's it. Even <laughs> with him doing, you know, the, you know, like every comedy, there's always like that, that heart at the end. So like Liar Liar, where he's like getting really serious with the kid, you know, it's there. People were not, I don't think people were ready for it or under, even understood it because I've, I have the most vivid memory of all time because I went to see Eternal Sunshine on opening night when it came out. After the movie's over, I'm, I'm in the bathroom and I hear this guy going, wasn't very funny because they didn't see anything, they didn't read anything. They just saw Jim Carrey. They thought it was supposed to be a comedy and that's what people just expect. And I think people also enter into these things thinking that, not realizing they're going to come out and be like, oh, that's not a comedy. He fought long and hard to get to Eternal Sunshine. And this is one of those movies where I don't think he would have gotten there without this movie. But also in, in terms of being the one for him at Oscar season, this was the third the one that he had because Truman Show was the first one. Yes, which Then you amazing. go with Man on the Moon. And it's right, like right. both of those films, he's absolutely dynamite in, even though he was a bit of an asshole with, Eternal, with a Man on the Moon. Yeah, but uh, that's the whole thing. Even in those films, people are getting enough of it. Doesn't have to be crazy, wacky Jim Carrey, but Truman Show. He's kind of he's kind of light and hearty and funny in a lot yeah. of ways. Except again, some of the stuff he does at the end of that movie is, I think, some of the best stuff he's ever done. And Man on the Moon, he's yeah. he gets to be the wacky Andy Kaufman. So like this is much more of boom. Yeah, it's right. just no pretense, no commercial vehicle. This was giving him a blank check an unvarnished blank check and giving Frank Darabont one too, which again, he's on a fucking run at this point. It's like, wow, Shawshank, wow, Green Mile. Uh, what's next? Well, I have this movie called The Majestic. Okay, fine. You know what? Here you go. Well, 72 million. Here you go. You just do this. That's the way, I mean, that's the way it should, honestly, that's the way it should be because you, I, I always go back to thinking about uh, Paul Thomas Anderson talking about the Red Oats Awards ceremony and uh, his Boogie Nights said it was coming out and Francis Ford Coppola comes up to him and says, now's the time. Oh, my camera's gone. Sorry, guys, but I'm still here. I'll change it in a second. But um, uh, Coppola tells him, now's the time. Do whatever you want to do. Because that's what Coppola, that's how Coppola got conversation made. Because after the Godfather and all sort of stuff, let him do whatever the hell he wants. So 
this is exactly how it should be. It's just that it didn't wellspring like some other things did. Yeah. You take the chance with these movies. And I would rather, I, I am just a firm proponent of, I would rather see someone take a swing and do something like this, that while it may not be recognized in its time, it will eventually, people will eventually catch up with it. And I'd like to think that people will eventually, if they haven't already caught up with the Majestic, because Josh, to your point, the part that really made me tear up, obviously besides Martin Landau's final scenes, like his final two scenes with Jim Carrey, was just, ugh. Yeah. His speech in the theater. I think that at our most idealistic, people like us go into this profession with that sort of thinking in mind. And just that spoke to me about the theater being magic about, and that's a, this is another thing that really aged well because it's like, well, you can just sit home and watch something on a box at home instead of going dressing up and going out and doing this. Right. It's just the fact that the whole restoration of the theater is predicated on this speech. I, it's, I had a movie theater near me close up. It was an AMC 24 screener and they closed it during COVID. It was not only really convenient to get to, it had an IMAX, it had a Dolby, it had a 70 millimeter projector. It was like a skeleton key of entertainment. And I had been going there for like over a decade with my friends. Like we, we were, my wife and I were going there before we even moved to the area. I was going there before I even met my wife. And I hate seeing that theater sitting there mm. because I really want it to be open and I want those screens to be running those things. And I, it was a trustworthy theater. So I wouldn't have to go running half an hour up the highway to another theater that's kind of, you know, it's, it's that this is, this also goes back a little bit to my um, comment about how um, there are certain parts of the film that maybe people certainly didn't think fit into the whole puzzle. I mean, because yes, the theater and what it stood for does, it really does. But I think certain people can't, I'm not trying to sound disparaging against audiences. I don't think they could put two and two together to see how it fits into the whole puzzle. And I, I'm going to go off, not on a tangent, but I'm going to go off on a little thing here because this, this is what you just reminded me of, especially. Not just his speech, but the power, again, of those, not, of, not just necessarily movie theaters, but during stuff like wartime, because I have my, one of my favorite musicians is Joe Henry. A lot of people don't know him. Um, he's actually, he's Madonna's brother-in-law. Some of her hits were written by him kind of thing. And he's got this song called, he's got this song called Our Song. And it's, I'm not gonna go through the whole thing, but he's got this section in it. I want to read this out to you guys. This is the lyrics. We push in line at the picture show for cool air and a chance to see a vision of ourselves portrayed as younger and braver and humble and free. So this idea of like, we're go we, we've just came back from all this horror. Now show me what we used to be like. That's what cinema at its peak has, has done for us. Uh, especially, you know, the great depression. It, it was an escape for people. Uh, world, again, after a post-war, uh, even hell, nine, a lot of people say that 9-11 really helped Lord of the Rings because it was an escapist fantasy that people really huh. could have used at that time. And also just the overarching theme of, you know, Tolkien being influenced by the horrors of World War I, but also being inf influenced by the bravery of it. And just fighting this horrific evil that's sort of shrouded and clouded our minds. And that just, I, I, 
I obviously we all of us wish there was a world where 9-11 didn't happen mm -hmm. and I would love to see what would have happened in that world if Lord when Lord of the Rings still came out I mean would it have been as I would like to think it would still have been as big of a cultural hit just because of the quality of the film you, you know what it's also interesting to think that I mean look there's a lot of stuff going on as we speak that is a war but we're also still and boiled in COVID, so that idea of also of how do we escape from the COVID stuff? You know, it's the same thing. It's not. It's not. It's not a. It's not a gun to gun war, but it's it's a similar feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's still just this general unease. Yeah. Cinema at its greatest helps us through these times. Guys, we're, sorry for audience who are only listening. We're all crying, so we're just red, wiping our eyes a little bit. <laughs> well, no, this is like, this is really serious stuff. And no, also, it is, yeah. it's part of why I really love this movie is it has its patriotic streak, but it also has just that, he, I mean, it has this huge affection for in-person cinema and for the way that theaters used to be. Like, if I was to open the theater, I would want it to be like the one in the majestic. I yeah, there are very yeah, yeah. few mm -hmm. near me. There's one near me on a there's one near me that still has like neon on the outside and it's just it's a regal. It's gorgeous. And I would want neon on the outside. I would want the concession stand to look like that. Like it, like the lights in the can, even just a little sign that says sweet shop and like the little old timey signs with like the candy bot animate uh anthropomorphic candy boxes and all that just right let's all this... go to the lobby exactly there was <laughs> yes. this charm and i know that they were just trying to sell people things but i'll tell you what there is a theater that comes close to this that's near my area it's the princeton garden theater right by princeton university they'll show they have like pre-show ad reels and then they'll also have like the old it's five minutes before the sh picture starts go to the concession stand and they put real butter on the popcorn it's a non-profit that mostly does indies and international movies but since their executive director did a thesis on batman and plus since the whole film noir connection makes it easier to put in an indie theater they're not the only ones to do this either they brought the batman in there and there's other indie theaters that have done that. Even AMC itself considers it an artisan film mm. because of the style and the execution that it brings to it. Wow. And that's, those, are, those are two words that I think are kind of missing from the modern theatrical experience, style and execution. Because I'll tell you what, the only reason my wife and I went to, well, one of the only reasons, my, the, the big reason my wife and I went to the Princeton Garden to see the Batman was because the bigger places are already, you know, booked up with reserved seating. So yeah. it's like, you know what? We haven't been to the Princeton Garden in a while. There's real butter on the popcorn. You know, you're getting an experience there <laughs> because they give a shit about movies. Like they're, one of their uh, concession employees was standing outside as the movie was ending. And we were just chatting and I was like, you know, you guys give a shit about movies. She's like, I know. And it's just, it's perfectly masked. It was a decent crowd. It, it's, a, it's only a two screen theater. Mm -hmm. I know I'm going on about this theater a lot, but it's just, that's- Yeah, is that this sponsored by this theater? This episode is sponsored by this theater, right? Mike, no, get in touch I, with somebody. <laughs> I wish, oh, I wish. I would, I would love to do a, you know, if we want to do a live show, I wonder if we could do it there. I'm sure we can we can talk to somebody. We can talk to somebody, but the Princeton Garden is just 
but that's it ties the, into the majestic just because it is for people that love movies it is for people that love american values but not the the capital america the american values that people like to flaunt out about like the actual backbone of what this country has represented right and that's interesting because like there is kind of that in the film like you you have kind of that rose-colored look back at at how things were but you also have this kind of push and pull with you know the mccarthy era that like yes it was a simpler more a wholesome time but also you had this you know these yeah. earrings and and uh the blacklist and everything so it, it is interesting kind of that and i think the the films also that darabont uh chose to show you know when they're doing the whole montage of the operations when they get back up and running you know even like the day the earth stood still like an alien comes to earth and they just shoot him because they don't trust him so like it's it's interesting like even that just underscores everything all the again like all the all the themes i think in the film are very very tight that's all that's and the it, other thing too I, I i know i keep going about younger audiences younger audiences but even younger audiences like like my age when that came out yeah i know what the, i knew what the blacklist was i i knew what all these things were a lot of people didn't a lot of people don't still a lot of people don't realize it was a real thing when they read about stuff now yeah and what movie are they showing at, at the end when they reopen invasion of the body snatchers right yeah it, that that was yeah i make yeah because it thought um i don't know what what did you make of that mike I, i'm curious what you thought of how that kind of tied into the uh well obviously invasion of the body snatchers was a huge red peril analogy in, right. in initial release and still continues to be but if you really want to think about it the threat never goes away they don't really candy coat it. It's just Peter Appleton got out of the life and went to live a more idealized, sort of a more cinema, literally a more cinematic life. Yeah. Yes. Right. That's a, that's the brilliant way to put it, actually. Yeah. Right. I. I mean, yeah. I. I yeah. And I. So yeah. Exactly. And just to, just to build off of it, I just thought like basically he took over Luke Trimble's life, essentially at the end, and I thought that kind of tied into the whole thing of you know taking on another identity through the movie, as well. Another layer for the body snatcher analogy. Yeah. Another layer for a lot of analogies, actually, too. But um, that's something that maybe we have to get into another time, gentlemen, because I think, I think we've now reached the point where we have to let Josh go. I'm sorry, Josh. We wish to talk to you longer, but... If he wants to go, if he wants to stay, he can. We made dinner. Yeah, but you know what? I, I, got, I, got, I got somebody coming over for dinner. I got, I got, I got. Oh! Oh, well. Well, you know what? That is very important because, again... As much as we love to love movies on Overdue Rentals, we love to love people. And The Majestic is another and movie. And books. We love entertainment. We oh, love books. people to talk about books, it. Books, you say. And Josh Weiss is a person that makes entertainment and talks about it. So now we're all just going to bring up our copies because Beat the Devils is in, on, in stores on March 22nd. Is there any other, are there any other places people need to go online, though, to, to find you, Josh? Um... I'm on Twitter, Joshua H. Weiss, uh, Instagram, Josh Weiss 1994. Um, you can find me on Facebook, LinkedIn, wherever uh, fine social media platforms are sold. Um, yeah, uh, thank you guys for having me. And, um, you know, for, I did actually want to mention uh, something, uh, something just, to, just to get back to the Majestic for yes. a second. I don't mean to take up too much of your time, just, but like at the end when he's like, you know, when they're talking about, um, He's talking with the studio lawyer and he's like, you know, you gave them a name. That's all they wanted. He's like, you just ruined someone's life. He's like, they known about her for months now or whatever. And he said, yeah. who do you think named you? Like, it's just so, 
it almost felt like um cohen brother like have you Another overdue rental should be Hail Caesar because it kind of reminded me of that. I like, just, I think I put that on my list. I think I put it on there. And if I yeah. haven't, th- yes. Yeah, I'm one yeah. of the people who loves Hail Caesar. I love Hail Caesar yeah. too. Great. Yeah, we should. You, all right. So I'll, I'll be back next week for a uh, talk on Hail Caesar. Um, <laughs> but it was just, you know, it just, it just, it, I just thought that was funny. Like, it was just like a nice little, like, yeah, this is like, it was so, how ridiculous that whole period was. Yeah. And also, I kept wondering if, the fact that they named the character Lucille Angstrom was kind of a nod to how Lucille Ball's whole sort of communism scare came about because wasn't she also on like some sort of random meeting list and it really wasn't something she was personally connected to? Possibly. I feel like, or maybe was it Bogart who was, I don't even know, like it, everybody, I think. <laughs> they all, yeah, they all were. Yeah. And, and only Ilya Kazan stood up for it and, and took the punishment yeah. technically. Yeah. And he's in the book. No spoilers though. Yeah. <laughs> Would not even dream to spoil we're not even dream of spoiling this book because I, look, if if we don't get too many detective yarns, we don't get many, too many detective yarns from Josh Weiss. But hopefully that'll change soon. And this is the first one, folks. Get in on the ground floor. Mike, where can people find us also before we before we go? Ah, that's a wonderful thing because, I mean, if we don't self-promote, then really, what do we promote? If we don't stand for ourselves, then what do we stand for on this great podcast? Matthew, have you ever been a member of the Overdue Rentals podcast? I, I, I started it. Fuck <laughs> you, we started it. But yeah, you did, you know, to be fair, Matthew did start the germ that built this whole thing. And I'm just glad to be a part of it and to be here with you gentlemen. But anyway, if you're glad to be in the presence of the Overdue Rental Show, your pal at the, at the rental counter, you can find us on TikTok and Instagram at Overdue Rental Show. You can find us on Twitter at Rentals Overdue. You can find us on Facebook at Overdue Rentals. Why do we have so many different names? Well, it's kind of hard when people have reserved your name on different platforms and you don't have the money to buy them out. However, you don't have to buy, we don't have to buy out our email address, which is overdurentals at gmail.com. That is the place you can send love letters, movie suggestions, and names of other known communists because we kind of want to party with them. Also, last but not least, if you like what you've listened to and you just happen to stumble upon this podcast on some sort of auditory shore washed away from some two of three tributaries, you could find us on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, wherever you start, wherever you ethically source your quality podcasts after a couple amaretto and ginger ales. Also, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe so that way the rental counter can stay open and we can keep suggesting wonderful films to you and wonderful guests who have wonderful books. Amen. Josh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Oh, yes. Oh, no, no, we're going to take the picture. Don't know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, but also we have to remind people don't forget to cross the majestic. Oh, God. Oh, my God, Mike, I messed up. Please don't forget. Please don't forget. (laughs) No, don't forget. And now, um, well, you know what? We've never ever introduced, we never invited a guest to close off with us, but since we've got Josh here, and I feel like maybe we should do this with guests in the future, uh, Josh, what we like to do on here. Uh, ever since, funny enough, since the Blob episode, uh, we like to say blah bye. Blah bye. So, um, on the count of three, would you join us in a blah bye? I would be honored. Ah, beautiful. Okay, gentlemen, one, two, three. Blah bye.